Welcome to Someday is Here, a podcast for Asian American women on leadership and culture. I'm your host, Vivian Mabuni. This podcast has been created to carve out a space for Asian American women to explore and validate living in both Eastern and Western worlds. Each week, we will celebrate our heritage and highlight Asian American history. My guests and I will explore our various Asian American journeys, both the parts that we are proud of and the parts that have brought pain. We'll discuss practical tips on leadership and our favorite comfort foods, of course. This is a place and a space to bring words and understanding to our shared experience living biculturally. I am so glad you're listening and look forward to your feedback. Enjoy the show. Welcome to season two of Some Days Here. My name is Vivian Mabuni and I am your host. Um, we are still here in a shelter in place for COVID 19. And I imagine many of you are hitting that time and space where life is a little bit bananas. Um, I'm with you. <laughs> I have found myself all over the place in the spectrum of um, excitement for some unexpected time that's opened up to declutter my messy drawers uh, to complete discouragement and fear and shutting down emotionally at times and uh, eating all the snacks. Um, I've bought weird things on Amazon. I mean, it's just been the whole span of everything. So I'm curious with how you all are doing out there. Um, but I am excited for to this week's episode and especially that you have the chance to hear from my friend, Judy Wu Dominic. She is this week's guest and you will probably remember her from the special edition episode that we had with Eugene Cho and um, Helen Lee. We talked about uh, coronavirus and um, she just brought in her, in her expertise. And so this is uh, the interview that we did before all of this happened. So um, we had this great conversation and I'm so glad you'll get to hear more of her story this week. Um, for those of you who are new to this episode and to Judy, just a little bit of background about her. Judy is um, a poet and a musician and an essayist. She's a brilliant writer. Everything she writes, whether it's her essays or her tweets even, are full of so much substance and thoughtfulness. She's such a sharp thinker and she writes with such clarity and strength and grace. Um, I love um, what she brings. And so I can't, I'm so excited that her articles are being, being linked up in the show notes. So be sure to check them out. She's thoughtful, she's effective, she's also a really loving person, and it was really fascinating to hear more of her story and her background and the things that she's learned about from her Taiwanese um, heritage. And so I learned a lot even in our conversation this, this week. Uh, Judy has published in many Christian uh, publications like Christianity Today, Faithfully Magazine. She's written um, one of the 365 devotions um, in the Encouraged Devotional Bible. Um, 
She is also a content developer for Be The Bridge, and we do a total shout out to Be The Bridge and our friend Tasha Morrison. Um, Be The Bridge is a nonprofit organization that empowers small groups of racially diverse Christians to explore and address the root causes of racial division in the U.S. Um, she is just the real deal. I'm so excited that you get the chance to hear from her. Some of Judy's background is that she has she worked as a physician's assistant at MD Anderson Cancer Center, and she has a master's of science in epidemiology from the University of Texas School of Public Health. She has a master's of science in physician's assistant studies from Baylor College of Medicine, and she she earned her bachelor's of arts in history at Rice University. So she is just learned and bright and brilliant, and I'm just so excited that you get a chance to hear our conversation. So enjoy this week's episode. This week's Did You Know is about Taiwanese immigrants who sought refuge in the United States during an era of martial law in Taiwan from 1949 to 1989 known as the White Terror or the 228 incident. And um, the interview today with Judy, we kind of refer to it. Basically, it started when the agents of the Tobacco Monopoly Bureau struck a Taiwanese widow suspected of stealing contraband cigarettes. And as a result, protests erupted nationwide. And during this time, Taiwanese citizens were terrorized by the military and government. It's estimated that over 18,000 people were killed during this period. Since then, Taiwan's past presidents and politicians have openly acknowledged and apologized for the 228 incident. Notable Taiwanese Americans that you may know of are renowned journalist Lisa Ling, Eric Liu, a speechwriter for President Bill Clinton, and NBA player Jeremy Lin. Also, Nobel Prize winner Dr. Yang Ti Lee, who was particularly recognized for his efforts in combating threats to freedom of speech and other rights integral to the practice of science. So these are some Taiwanese American heroes and a little bit of Taiwanese American history. And this is this week's Did You Know? Hello and welcome to season two of Someday is Here. My name is Vivian Mabuni and I am thrilled today to be interviewing um, a woman I respect and admire um, and just find incredibly delightful. Uh, Judy Wu Dominic is our guest today and we, I'm trying to think, Judy, how did we first met a few years back? Where was mm -hmm. it that again? It was in Atlanta where I was living at the time. Uh, and you, I think it was during the Catalyst Conference, and uh, you were there, and I came up for one afternoon, and yes. they say hello. <laughs> <laughs> I Here you like are in have, the flesh. I know mutual friends. I've admired you, Judy, for for years. Just as far as everything you've written about uh, has really resonated. I feel like you have such an incredible grasp of uh, well, you communicate so clearly in your writing, and it's evident. I can't wait to link your writing and your blog. Um, I just feel like you're a very deep thinker, a thorough thinker, and a very heartfelt thinker. And it just all comes out through your writing. Oh, thank you so much. You know, I need to like bottle up all of that good stuff and pull it out when I'm not feeling good about myself. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, then we'll just, yeah, you can replay this, 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 this portion of our podcast then. Yeah. So. Okay. Well, so Judy, we, you have, you know, it's your background, as I 
um, shared earlier in the intro has ranged from writing music to writing words. You have just kind of been in so many different spaces. Could you maybe let's back up from there and just start with um, just your ethnic journey, um, who you are, what your, what your path has been? Yeah, sure. Um, I am the child of Taiwanese immigrants. My dad came over as a PhD student in 1969 um, to work on his his degree in uh, chemical engineering at the University of Houston. And he and my mother got married in 1970 uh, in Taiwan. He went back and married her after proposing to her in a letter. And then she came over in 1971 and I was born a couple of years later. So I grew up in uh, the United States and kind of straddling these two worlds. My, my parents were kind of late 20s uh, when they moved here. So this was really a completely different world. You know, they were adults, um, fully formed adults, you know, uh, when they came. And so, uh, and I've heard Kathy Kong talk about how it's almost like you take who they were back then and that's a snapshot of what Taiwan was like, the thinking that was prevalent at the time among their particular class or you know group of mm. peers. And then they were transported to the United States and they, they just kind of stayed um, in a certain mindset. Whereas maybe people who stayed within the country, um, as the country has changed, they've changed too. Mm. But it's almost like our parents are in a time capsule that transported to the United States. Yeah, yeah. And so that was kind of interesting. And and over time, they have found that they don't belong either here or there. You know, like, oh, we can never go back, really, and have no desire to go back. But our life is here, and yet we always feel alien Mm. in some way. So I have always appreciated that part of their narrative. And... um, You know, they survived, and I didn't learn this until my 40s, they survived a great deal of political upheaval uh, that impacted them personally. Um, And a lot of people don't know the history of Taiwan if they've never had reason to, but it it was a Japanese colony from 1895 until the end of World War II. Mm. And because it was a Japanese colony, the United States actually carried out air raids over Taiwan. And a lot of the bombs destroyed like entire cities and um, wow. homes and businesses. And, you know, I know they were tar- targeting, you know, specific military and um, fuel production sites. But my mom says that her entire city was destroyed. and It left thousands of people homeless and wow. thousands of people were killed. And my mother was uh, a little over... How old was she? She was probably about a year old when some of those bombs, the air raids began, mm-hmm. you know. And then um, there was this whole long period of rebuilding, and then the transfer of power to the Kuomintang, which was Chiang Kai-shek's um, government uh, governing authority, and that was accompanied by a lot of uh, bitterness with the Taiwanese natives because they experience land theft, asset theft, um, and Mm. it created a lot of political unrest. Um, Mm -hmm. And so in 1947, there was what's called the 228 incident where there was, you know, 
bit of a skirmish on the street and a government worker was killed and then like the mayor called in military and um actually before the military called in the police were driving through and just randomly shooting people who were you know rioting and then the mayor called in uh military this is the mayor of taipei mm -hmm. um and and so uh military forces from china were sent into taiwan and they massacred like it depends on what records you read um but anywhere from 20 to 30,000 people were wow. massacred tortured publicly executed <clears throat> and then uh many of the educated people were rounded up and imprisoned and and it and continued so mainland china this is this is taiwan yeah so this is taiwan because taiwan was now under their governance oh okay. under the governance of the kuomintang yeah right. which was the chinese nationalist party okay this yes. actually gives so much context because I, you know, my parents were born in China and they fled when the Japanese invaded okay. and they rebuilt their lives in Taiwan and then, you know, had to start from scratch mm. again. So mm -hmm. it's one of those things where I heard, I grew up hearing the stories of my mom remembering the, hearing the, the sounds of distant bombs, like they had fled to the countryside, yeah. you know, to avoid, you know, the war. Right. And so, um, that was part of their story, but now I'm hearing this side of it, which is so, uh, it makes, it just is the pieces of history as far as how it's okay. getting played out in the U.S. is significant mm -hmm. because the Taiwanese pride of my mm -hmm. Taiwanese friends is so strong and I've never really understood some of that. So this is so helpful. Keep going. <laughs> right. Well, you know, what's interesting too is um, if you ever read uh, or have ever read Eddie Huang's book, uh, Fresh Off the Boat, Mm. You know, he's from Taiwan too, yeah. but his parents worked, they were part of the Chinese Nationalist Party. His father worked for the Ministry, Ministry of the Interior. Oh, wow. And his father actually re resigned because he felt like the government was um, not treating the Taiwanese people well. Mm. And he, I think he did that out of conscience. And so I felt like that was really interesting, but even the, the narratives of, those two sides and you can say oh we're both from taiwan we're both taiwanese but it's almost like oh but we have such vastly different experiences mm -hmm. and and when i listen to the way that he resisted racism being called racial slurs or he reacted by fighting people and beating mm -hmm. them up or you know he had the confidence to do that because he was proud of who he was mm. but i my family was very traumatized mm. because you know, they were the people who experienced all these uh, land losses and um, having to rebuild, being extremely impoverished for long periods of time. My mom mm -hmm. talks about building a a temporary uh, shelter with, you know, some basic lumber and then like tin roof and just kind of tying it together and then raising hogs and then trying to sell them so that, you know, the money could be used to send my, her brother, her oldest brother to medical school. And I mean, wow. you know, like, like really kind of incredible stuff and cooking over an open fire inside. You know, I, I mean, that, mm. I'm one generation removed from that. I can't, right. even, I can't even imagine living that way, you know? So they were native Taiwanese. Yes. yes. Okay. They were native Taiwanese. Now, when I say that, they were part of the big migration in the 1800s of people who what came from the um, Fujian province mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. China yeah. and established themselves in Taiwan. So this all happened 
decades before all the things of the early mid 20th century, right? So there was a couple of different waves and depending on where you fall within that, it Mm -hmm. determines your experience, right? And so um, it's, it's like the, the African-Americans who were descended from people who were enslaved have a very different experience from African um, immigrants, right. You know, who came over more recently, right. Um, and who might look at things differently. Mm-hmm. Um, even if they experience similar kinds of racism, they don't process it the same because they haven't had this long connection to racial oppression that began with enslavement through Jim Crow through yes. you know, all those things, right? So With the children that yeah. come from South Africa and his yes, I, that makes right. a lot of sense, right? So I'm like, you know, oh, I'm from Taiwan. It's like, well, but what is your story? You know, it's complicated. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really complicated. And it's a teeny tiny nation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't, and 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 what's funny is I never learned any of this stuff until I started reading books about it because my parents mm. never talked about it. So yeah. here's the thing. Here's the difference when I read Eddie Wong's um, memoir, I was like, how did he have so much confidence in who he was? And that was tied to the fact that his family was tied to the ruling party, mm. you know, and, and my family was tied to the oppressed people, right? you know, in, in more than one way. And so um, we were, I was raised by very traumatized people. Mm. And my father struggled with a, a mental illness that began when I was very young, and he continues to struggle with that. My mom, um, they both have PTSD. I mean, it's not like it was diagnosed. And it's only as mm-hmm. I've worked through my own um, trauma that I've realized, oh, well, I got this because they were traumatized and they never had the chance to mm. go through a recovery process. So when yeah. I was growing up, I just thought they were really uh, un unhappy, unstable people who made my life a little bit unpredictable, like kind of miserable mm-hmm. at times, but they provided yeah. for me and they were always very um, concerned about everything, you know, mm. for me, bought me clothes, fed me, uh, worried about me, you know, but there was a lot of chaos at home. And so I never felt any ethnic pride. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I really didn't. I'm just like, Holly, oh, these people are crazy, you know? And mm-hmm. I think that, when you're a child, that's the only way you can process things. And then we get dumped in this predominantly white suburb of Houston, Texas. And suddenly mm-hmm. I'm in, I'm going to school with people who seem to have it all together. And, mm. and, and I'm like, why, why can't I be like those people? And I just want to be like them. And then um, I experience, you know, my first time um, hearing my friend being called a chink or mm. um, having like, having someone laugh at my mom's accent when she came to school to volunteer. And so there was this great sense of shame Mm. around being Asian or being different and feeling inferior Mm -hmm. and feeling like, gosh, my family is like this. I don't want people to know about that. Mm. You know, why can't I be like this? So there was this part of me that was like, if I was just white, if I could just be white, I think everything would be better. Mm-hmm. you know and so uh, even growing I, up yeah and and I think I carry that with me all through college and graduate school and early adulthood and even when I became a Christian in college I mm-hmm. chose at the time to instead of 
attend the Chinese church, which I had been kind of visiting, or the Taiwanese church, which my parents had brought me up in, mm-hmm. sort of. <laughs> you mm-hmm. know? Yeah. I was like, I'm going to go to that white Presbyterian church with these other friends of mine. Mm. And that's how I ended up in the white evangelical world for like 14, 15 years. Mm. It was longer than that. It was probably almost 20 years before. um, I guess I should back up. So I was a a really committed uh, participant of my church in Houston. You know, I was very involved in the music program and all these different um, ministries. And then I met my husband and, you know, of course I couldn't have articulated this back then. And I did go out on dates with Asian men, um, but I eventually was like, you know, I want to marry a white guy, you know? (laughs) So so I did. And um, it didn't help that the one Taiwanese American that I dated uh, was also a product of trauma mm. and that there was a lot of trauma associated with that relationship that right. kind of scarred me for life mm-hmm. <laughs> and made me never want to repeat that again. Sure. You know, and so that was another reason I was like, yeah, I, it was, it's true. I just should be like a white person and marry a white myself. person. Yeah. Distance myself mm-hmm. from all this craziness. Right. Really quick, going back uh-huh. to growing up then, do you have siblings? I have a younger brother. A younger brother. And so did yes. you guys speak Chinese at home or Taiwanese at home or what was it we like? We spoke, yeah. Um, my parents spoke Taiwanese, mm-hmm. which is a dialect. It's, it's quite different. Um, and Mandarin is the official language of Taiwan, even though Taiwanese is uh, the most, and it's called, you know, Minanhua mm-hmm. or Fukien. Um, it just depends on, you know. Like who you, who you talk to, and and so I grew up hearing my parents speak that to each other, but they spoke Mandarin to my brother and me. Oh, interesting. Yes, because they wanted us to be educated in the language that they knew would become more important for us to learn. So mm. we were sent to Chinese school to learn Mandarin, <laughs> how to yeah. read, write, you know, speak Mandarin. Mm-hmm. And um, my brother and I, of course, spoke English to each other. Mm-hmm. That's what we spoke in, in school. So, and it was torture because we had to go to Chinese school every Saturday from nine every to noon. Saturday. What I kid know. wants to do that? I did that no from the time I was to do that. elementary all the way through mm-hmm. high school. Actually, I in high school, I stopped because I was able to take Chinese in my high school. <laughs> oh, you, wow, they allowed yes. I ended up taking Chinese in college and okay. somehow dodged Chinese school in Boulder, Colorado. But wow. I had heard so many horror stories. And then when they showed that in Fresh Off the Boat, when, you know, Eddie is at Chinese school and, you know, his mom is going bananas because he's not being stretched enough, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> oh my goodness, because all of my friends around me that were Chinese in Boulder, you know, went to Brown and Stanford. And it was just this, you know, that was yeah. the environment. So um, like, wow, yes, Chinese school brings back the memories. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so you were trying to move as far away from this, you know, the Chinese upbringing, married yeah. a white man, mm-hmm. kind of immersed yourself in a white world, right? Which where you lived. Um, so, I would, I would love to know, like, did you, like, I, in addition to um, hearing 
racial slurs like chink or, uh-huh. you know, where did you, where are you from? Those kinds of things. Do you remember other points of pain for you um, that you experienced growing up? You know, not, not so much growing up, um, but kind of even as a young adult, as a single person. So there was a fundraiser for a prominent ministry that had a, um, a particular branch that ministered to uh, politicians in Washington, mm-hmm. D.C. And I was invited to go to the fundraiser because I used to give to um, this organization. And I brought a friend with me as a guest uh, who was very interested in political things because I thought she'd be interested. And when I showed up, um, you know, she was my guest. So both her name tags were there. And the, the woman at the table who greeted us said, looked at her and said, Oh, you must be Tara, you know, mm-hmm. and she never made eye contact with me, never acknowledged my presence. It was as if I were invisible. And then, um, I would ask a question and she would speak to Tara. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> and this is a woman who was handling some of the logistics or the greeting at this fundraiser. And I was like, what is happening? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, So it was, it was stuff like that. It was more subtle. Um, And, uh, or going to the uh, cosmetics counter before I was getting married Mm -hmm. um, and, and asking for some tips on how to apply makeup and, you know, what products. And and the woman was like, why don't you just come on the day of your wedding and, and someone will do your face for you. Or, you know, I'm like, I, you know, and willing to buy things and I have the ability to <laughs> learn, you know, just show me. She's like, no, she just didn't want to do it, but they were, they make people up all the time. Right. Uh, or walking into a stationary store um, and looking at invitations to, to look at invitations, wedding invitations. And um, the woman who's white and probably in her sixties looked at me and said, well, do you even know what you like? And I'm like, what? I'm just here to. Can you show me some of your different offerings? <laughs> you know, <laughs> wow. Do you want to do your job? You know, yeah. <laughs> and she was like, Well, why don't you come back when you know what you like? Wow. And and so it was it was things like that. Or or I another time um, I was out front. My roommate and I were in the in the front yard, and then one of our neighbors walked up to us that we had never met and he was talking to my roommate. She's white. And he kept talking to her and I would contribute to the conversation, but he would never acknowledge me. Mm. And he just kept talking to her. And after a while, um, my roommate started saying, yeah, Judy, my roommate who works at MD Anderson. (laughs) 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 Cause she even picked up on it. And right. then like after he left, she goes, I really, I, I think he thought you were like a worker or something. You wow. Because mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. we were like gardening and stuff. I had my gloves on and my scrappy <laughs> clothes. You know, I'm just the help. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. stuff like that or walking into an art gallery with a group of white friends and like, um, and they all get eye contact and acknowledged and talked to and I don't. Like mm-hmm. I never get, I never get looked at, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and then mentioning it to them and they're like, Oh, we didn't notice. I'm like, of course you didn't notice because yeah. he was talking to you. <laughs> yes, <laughs> totally. Totally. So I think it's th- those kinds of experiences mm-hmm. more than like the real, like overt racial slurs or, mm-hmm. you know, 
they they more make an impact that makes me go like I just want to prove to you that I'm worthy of your attention. I'm like, wait, why? <laughs> why? Mm-hmm. I don't have anything to prove to this random stranger that happens to misjudge me or prejudge me because of the way I look. Right, right. You know, yeah. Um, and but you know that was still way before I even started thinking that this was like a problem that I had internalized. Mm. You know, and it it really wasn't until my husband and I moved from Houston to San Antonio and the San Antonio to um, Atlanta. And we were trying to stay in a particular like group of churches, like a Mm -hmm. denomination that was, um, that's known for being pretty homogeneously white. That I just, some of that invisibility Mm -hmm. that, that I was describing to you, I started experiencing in these church settings. I'd go to play groups and, Nobody would talk to me. I would ask mm. people questions as the new person trying to get to know people and they would answer my questions and they would right. ask me no questions back. And then they would talk to each other and provide no context, happy to exclude me from whatever was going on. And, you know, I just finally lost it. Mm-hmm. You know, after about a year, I just, this one day I was like, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like talking to somebody being interrupted as if I'm not even there. I'm just mm. like, so annoying. You know? Right. Totally. And after it happens enough times, you're just like, I am not imagining things, you know? Right. Right. <laughs> and so I was like, you know, we're going to have to go somewhere. I want to try multi-ethnic church somewhere. Never mm. done that before. I've had it. And that really launched me on this journey of unpacking all the ways I had internalized white supremacy and um, realizing I can never become white, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. um, even though somebody told me, well, you're basically like a white person or somebody else said, yeah, you're like, the, you Asians are the ideal minority. You fit in so great with us white people, you know? And I'm like, mm. oh, thanks. You know, <laughs> what is that? Right. I'm an honorary white person and you think that's a compliment. Why, why is it not enough for me to stand alone like who I am mm-hmm, the way mm-hmm. the way I'm made you know yeah yeah and so that, it's interesting because <laughs> that invisibility I think it part of it with our culture of mm-hmm. being um you know just humility or just you know being aware of the collective so others we're yeah. always trying we won't self-promote we don't try to stick right. out there's there's part of that woven into our ethnic dna that's right and yet there is definitely the the uh what you're talking describing as just kind of this being um ignored almost like mm-hmm. like you said just invisibility where that that scene in um crazy rich asians in the very beginning when she comes in to stay in the suite, right. you know, and she's <laughs> all hotel. sopping wet in the rain yes. and then ends up buying the hotel. Yeah. And I just think there's just something like stick it to you, you know, like there's yeah. a part of me that just thinks there is such a, um, there were so many assumptions are made um, by just external, like you have no idea that this woman mm-hmm. has this much money and power and, you know, like is basically right. just going to buy this whole hotel straight out you know it's like that's right you know but (laughs) I think that there's there are power issues and then there's also the humility thing like you Mm -hmm. know while you're standing there you're not going to toot your own horn go oh yes I have multiple degrees and I am you know I have graduated from some of the top universities here and I'm not just you know what you think or didn't even see and so it's like this crazy making (laughs) yeah dynamic that you're describing so it's a little bit like how to maintain 
a genuine humility while also inserting mm-hmm. voice and place and right. uh, and the confidence that even you speak of with Fresh Off the Boat with Eddie. And I wonder too, as a woman, as an Asian yeah. American woman, yeah, yeah. how much that plays in too. Right. There's definitely gender issue, you know, gender differences. I'm not so, gonna go beat somebody up for right. calling me a chink, right? Right. Where Eddie could. <laughs> Sorry, somebody else, Eddie could. <laughs> I mean he got in trouble, but he was like, whatever. <laughs> you know? But you do know Kung Fu, right, Judy? Oh, yeah, <laughs> oh, so much. Oh, so much Kung Fu. Oh, say, Hi-ya. Hi-ya. <laughs> Hi-ya. Definitely. Oh my god. We'll <laughs> uh okay, well then just switching up a little bit, because I do want to go back to your journey as it continues, but you know, those are definitely points of pain of you know, being overlooked or ignored or dismissed, um, feeling invisible. Um, as you have been journeying, what are some areas that have produced in you a really healthy pride in being Taiwanese, American, mm-hmm. Chinese American, some of that journey? Yeah. Okay. So I think it was reading my parents' history, the history of my parents' country. And, you know, I'm like, why did I have to wait until my 40s to learn about this? I feel like it would have been so helpful, right? Mm -hmm. But to learn about all that trauma and to put all of their behavior and their struggles in that context, suddenly it's like, instead of, why are you guys so crazy? I'm like, wow, these folks are so resilient. Look what they have been through and look what Mm -hmm. they have been able to build Mm-hmm. Look at the perseverance. I mean, this is like 70 years of this kind of suffering, you know. Yeah. Um, and mm. yet they managed to raise two children who went through school and have advanced degrees and have gotten married and started families. And we haven't burned down anything, you know. I, and I mean, <laughs> but we could have because some of our peers have not done as well. Right. They have had um, struggles with addiction. They have had you know, failed marriages that they've had. I mean, everybody does, but, but it's, it's like they have also exhibited the signs and symptoms of, you know, secondary trauma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so I think having that holistic view, Mm. um, that broad sweeping view has been so helpful. And it's really what helped to connect me to some of these sweeping narratives of the context in the United States, you know, mm. of what people have suffered. And so it really, um, it really irks me when people are like, well, the past doesn't matter. Mm. We just, let's just focus on the present. I'm like, mm-hmm. that doesn't make any sense because mm-hmm. you're acting as if the present exists in a vacuum, that mm. it's completely, completely divorced from everything that, that came before it. Mm-hmm. I mean, even our individual lives don't work that way. I'm just going to focus yeah. on the present, not dwell on the past. It's like, but the past is always with you. You carry mm-hmm. it with you. And unless you face it, it's going to control you mm-hmm. in some ways that you don't want it to versus looking at it and then being able to go, okay, now I'm going to decide to do this with it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That's so good. That is so good. So I love that part of what you're walking in right now is definitely like racial reconciliation, your involvement with Be The Bridge. I'd love for you to kind of unpack a little bit of, you know, just what kind of the landscape right now, which in many ways feels like a dumpster fire, which with increasing polarization. So, Mm -hmm. you know, from your vantage point, what do you see? What are, what are your hopes? What, 
what would you love to see happen? And even among Asian Americans, where mm-hmm. some Asian Americans don't even consider themselves people of color, they just kind of lump right. them with white. Or even some of my my um, black and brown sisters have expressed to me like, you know, when we think about Asian American, it doesn't occur to us that you're not white. We kind of lump right. you in there as well. So talk, talk, share, share some thoughts. There. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. So when we, um, well, my husband and I ended up being part of a multi-ethnic church, uh, I was forced to deal with my own anti-black prejudice, mm-hmm. which I didn't even know I had. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had kind of inherited a lot of attitudes from the particular circles that I had tried to assimilate into, you know, whether it's a hatred of Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson or a mm-hmm. particular way of speaking about race riots or, you know, whatever it was, uh, or assuming black people were X, Y, and Z. These are all sort of subconscious things. But, you know, once you're in community with people, you're just like, oh, okay. I need to divest myself of this belief or these attitudes, or I need to learn more about this and not assume that, you know. Mm -hmm. I think it took probably a whole year of like detoxing, you know, um, like actively just learning and listening and being in relationship with people and and not being like, Oh, Hey, you're a black person. Come tell me all about black people, you know, Mm -hmm, but really mm -hmm. kind of being in a community. And and that's where I feel like there's such a lack of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Um, If you're in a really homogenous space and you're trying to learn about race and suddenly you're going to like grab some person who you think represents that group of people (laughs) and try to get them to educate you. But mm. that's not the way it works. Yeah, yeah. You have to, and this is what um, Christians would call incarnation, where you like put on flesh and you enter somebody else's world. Mm-hmm. Um, like we believe that God put on flesh and and took and Jesus took on humanity, you know. Um, and so it's that whole idea of entering as a an infant who doesn't know and has to grow and learn, mm-hmm. you know, in a humble state mm-hmm. versus. I've got my ideas and my agenda and mm-hmm. my checklist. You know, that's not how you want to approach people. And so having been through that whole process myself, I realized, wow, you know, I mean, if I had to do this, then I'm sure lots of other people have to do that. Mm-hmm. How can I be an instrument in helping people have the same kind of experience? Mm-hmm. Because it has completely revolutionized the way that I approach politics and conversations and conflict and, um, and I used to be very caustic in the other camp, you know, um, I was all about conservative politics and, um, talking about what's wrong with Barack Obama and, you mm-hmm. know, cause I was in that world. And then when I had, when I switched over, I became caustic in the other direction and sure. it was just like these conservatives are all racist and. You know, it's like at some <laughs> point, like broad <laughs> sweeping statements. Are, yes. yeah. At some point I, I realized I'm like, we've got to stop talking this way. And mm. it's so easy to speak this way when you are in a disembodied format, like social media. It's yeah, so easy. Right. And I, I was reading this really funny, insightful article this morning about, um, what do they call it? The internet of beefs mm. where 
you, know, you are a beefs only. Um, uh, I can't, I can't remember exactly how it was worded, but it, it's like where like you are like the person who always has a beef with someone and that becomes your yeah. identity. Yeah. And then your job is to recruit other people with and then have them join in the whole beef. And, you know, yes. it just perpetuates itself because, you know, instead of actually trying to have a conversation and then there are always people who are trying to have genuine conversations, but they mm-hmm. always get interrupted by all the detractors who want to have just a fight and a brawl. Right. <laughs> you know? And so that's I find so it really true. incredibly difficult to navigate that space, but I feel like we still need to try mm. because that is where so many people are um, having conversations. And then people who want to have constructive conversations all abandon that space. Then you're going to be left with only the, the most extreme, extreme. voices. Extreme beef. Yeah. 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 No, I think that that's so true. There's something to be said about life on life relationships that, so that I think of that TED talk, the danger of a single story. Yes. Which is one of my favorite TED talks, that and Brene Brown's. But yes, the danger of a single story. Uh, Nigerian woman. Chimamandi. Oh, I can never remember. She, it's you, know, a, you know who yes, I'm talking about. Yes, yeah. exactly. So she talks about in her, even in her own narrative, coming to the United States to study and people's uh, assumptions. And, mm-hmm. you know, she's the, the first Nigerian that they'd ever met. So they had all these assumptions about how she lived. And then she realized that she had assumptions about people in her life. And there's just a danger of the single story. So if you That's only right. have your one black friend and and if your black friend happens to be or your Asian friend or whatever Mexican friend is is raised in an entirely white environment, their experience of their blackness or their Latino culture or their Asian culture mm-hmm. is very much shaped differently than if you were raised in a majority Asian culture as well. I mean, it's right. so there's like, and there's, that, there are all these regional differences too, where yes. Northeast, Southern, yes. Western, oh yeah, my North goodness. Pacific, Northwest, super different. Very, very different. And so to assume that because you have one Asian friend means that you understand all of Asian culture, that's not even to take into account Hmong and South Asian yeah. and Filipino. And, you know, like, yeah, and we've so already talked much about diversity. having one Taiwanese friend doesn't right. even adequately capture yes. the Taiwanese experience. Exactly. And, and even the Taiwanese in what, yeah, what, what decade they were experiencing Taiwan. So it's, so to me, there's something about living life on life and embodied like that, what you're talking about, like really moving into um, communities and soaking in, because I feel like there's something to be said about reading about the, the Sunday meal, you know, or, or, church for African-Americans and it's mm-hmm. an entirely different thing to actually attend a, a black church and yeah. be able to experience, you know, the, the type of worship or preaching styles or the food afterwards, all of that I think is so, mm-hmm. so much a part of um, the lived experience rather than just reading about it. Um, yeah. But I, I do think that there's hope that there, we could see, um, lives changed because of interaction. That's why I love, one of the things I love about Be The Bridge, in addition to Tasha, because everyone loves Tasha, who everyone cannot love Tasha, Tasha Morris. 
Tasha Wilson. She's our our (laughs) hero. So shout out to Tasha. But in addition to Tasha and the incredible team, there's really been set up in a way on the Facebook group that, you know, if you're new to the group, you don't even comment for the first three months. You just Mm -hmm. come in as a learner. And I feel like that posture, kind of what you're talking about, come in as a baby, the humility of learning, taking in, being open to uh, that posture, I think makes such a huge difference. So it makes a huge difference. Yeah. I, I still remember I was, I used to moderate for that um, on Facebook group on, you know, when mm-hmm. I was on Facebook and, um, and then now I'm not even on Facebook. So I deleted my account and I don't know if people realize this, but when you delete your account, like your existence is like wiped clean. Wow. So every comment you ever made, Every post Everything you ever post, gone. like gone. <gasps> Whoa, that yeah. feels like a movie theme. <laughs> but, you know, I was, I was, yes, totally. But you know, one of the reasons why I stopped doing that, um, in particular, was because uh, I had to deal with some personal, very personal, like bridge building with my husband. Because mm-hmm. when we got married, I was one person. And then suddenly mm-hmm. I became this other person and, and our politics diverged. Yeah. Right? And so yeah. it was like, whoa, what's happening? And everything I was reading on Be the Bridge, all the articles I was vetting about mm-hmm. you know, racial violence and inequity and everything, it was just getting me, getting me angry all the time. Sure. <laughs> so it didn't help our interactions because I would want to talk about them, but we would talk about them very differently. Mm-hmm. You know? And then, um, so I was like, you know, I need to take some time and we need to work on some things. Mm. And through that process of really trying to figure out what does this look like in the most intimate of relationships? Yeah. yeah. You know, like this is the first time my husband and I have had to work on the racial reconciliation project as Mm -hmm. a married couple. Because before that I was assimilated. Sure. And suddenly I wasn't, and we were like, what's happening? You know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so it's like, if I take my vows seriously and I want this marriage to work and he does too, then there's certain things that we needed to do. And, and so that was, um, and you've got to make some sacrifices. So Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. that whole season, I just kind of like vanished and just worked Mm -hmm. on my, my marriage and my relationship with my child and my mother-in-law lived with us. Mm. you know, and, um, so it was, it was interesting because the relationships were good, but the politics were so different that it started causing tension. And that was like all leading up to the, the 2016 election. Right. Right. And, um, and then I eventually wrote about the experience in in an article that was published called loving your political frenemies. I didn't mm-hmm. pick that title, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Usually the titles are like, they, they come not, up with it. It's like, ah, uh, that's yeah. not quite the tone that I would necessarily. That was necessarily the editor's choice. And, choice. And, and, I you know. know like, as okay, a writer. you are printing this Just in your magazine. You get to, we will definitely link said. up that article because it is an excellent article. And I think was timely and is still timely, even right now as we enter into 2020. Right. Oh, my oh Judy. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's so He's still true. my beating heart. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, I, you know, this is what I love about you, even just hearing that little picture, because I missed you. You know, I missed, I oh. missed your voice and your opinion and the articles, the thoughtful articles that you would post. Uh, but that to me communicates a real desire to be a woman of integrity, to be a woman who would have, uh, 
I think the word, the root word of integrity is wholeness. Like you mm. be the same person everywhere. And so I love that that's such a high commitment of yours that you would be a woman of integrity. So I just wanted to just, just say thank you for thank modeling you. that because thank I think it can be, um, you know, all the attention and all of the, you know, these, fa- these people you may never meet in real life mm-hmm. can, you know, be cheering you on and yet. Right. And that was the big temptation. Real, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because people were like, oh, come speak at our, come right. speak at our conference. We'll pay for this and that. Right. And we'll pay right. you. And, yes. you know, like, and I was like, hey. and my marriage will fall apart. Well, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. I really respect that about you. Um, so thank you for that. I really do. That's a great, you're modeling, I think, such a critical, in the quiet, people don't know about, and yet it really matters in the end. So that's really good. So really quick, mm-hmm. it's completely off topic because we've been talking about big things, important things, but this <laughs> is also, it has a special place in all of our hearts too. What is your favorite Asian comfort food? Oh man, <laughs> you know, this is so hard for me because over the last, uh, how long has it been now? 13 years? I've had to deal with like finding out I had all these food allergies. Like I had mm. celiac and oh. I had to stop eating dairy and corn. And so gluten, dairy, corn, you know, oh. and, and Soy I can have as long as the soy sauce is tamari and doesn't have leek. Mm, mm-hmm. So that really makes Asian food dangerous for me. And I also have multiple chemical sensitivities. So I don't do well with MSG, food additives, mm. artificial flavoring. So like for me to go into an Asian restaurant, unless I know what they are cooking and how, yeah. it could make me really sick. Mm. And that has made me really sad, you know, because there's so many things that I miss eating. I love going to dim sum restaurants and just Mm -hmm. like, oh, I love that and that and that. (laughs) Everything taro. I love taro. Yes. (laughs) So good. Taro, ginger root, um, soy sauce and sesame oil, like that combination. So good. Oh, wow. My (laughs) mouth started watering. (laughs) (laughs) Fry it up, baby. But, um, yeah, I don't know. And I remember I, I traveled to China to see my brother and his wife when they lived there. And um, I may have the exact year wrong, but it's like 2003. And we had the best food. Dumplings, you know, the best dumplings, Guotian. I mean... Oh, yeah. It was fantastic. I'm so glad I was not diagnosed back then. <laughs> yeah, I know. Seriously, it's true. It's, true. Yeah. it's like, I don't know. Nom, 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 nom. So, yeah. yeah. No, I hear I'm you. Like, if well, someone comes up with like a um, Chinese cookbook that's also like, um, immune protocol friendly. <laughs> right. <laughs> Great. That would be, maybe that's your next project. Who knows? <laughs> oh my goodness. I'll help sample uh, for you. I would, be, yeah. I would be so happy to come and sample for for you for your future future deliciousness. But there, it's kind of interesting to see some of the fusion foods that have come out of, you know, being more mindful of some of the health issues and uh-huh. things like that. Part of my growing up, my mom um, was steps away from her PhD and then she got pregnant with me. So I didn't know uh-huh. that till I was married, that that was how close she was to her PhD. Wow. But then she ended up teaching Chinese at the University of Colorado. And then as, after she got tenured, she quit because it didn't pay very much. So she opened mm. a Chinese restaurant to my horror because I was just like, that is such an immigrant 
thing that like now to have a restaurant is really cool and to cook yeah. is really cool. But back then it was like, that was the quintessential immigrant, like, you know, just all thing the, to do. Yeah. And I just yeah. was just like, you have a graduate degree. So anyway, all <laughs> that to say was that she was very forward thinking. So she was the first restaurant in Boulder to have no MSG. She uh, had tempeh. She, you know, she was very mind vegetarian that, you know, she had yeah. a very health, approach to her food. She was the first to serve brown rice. So she was way ahead of her time. Yeah. You know, but it was still like for me, part of my, you know, my appreciation of who they are. But at the time it was like, no, not the Chinese restaurant. So (laughs) it's just, yeah. Don't be the stereotype. I know. I know. Please don't be the stereotype. But anyway, well, Judy, I have loved our conversation and I would love to. I enjoyed it. I would love uh, for you to share how um, listeners can connect with you. Obviously not on Facebook. So where can they find you? I am on Twitter. Uh, My handle is Judy Dominic Mm -hmm. and I'm on Instagram at Judy.Dominic and my uh, WordPress pages at uh, liferreconsidered.com. Yes. Well, we will hook up all of those places on our show notes on the website. And I am just encouraging every single listener to follow you in those places. And I just was thinking most recently, there was something that you had shared on Twitter that was so brilliant. I just think, Judy, keep writing, keep on writing, keep on <laughs> sharing. So, so grateful well, thank for you. you. And thank um, I'll you. look forward to hopefully seeing you in person soon. So that would be great. Yeah. If you come to Dallas, come let me know. We'll be there. I'll be there soon. Okay. Look forward to it. Thanks, Judy. Thanks, Vivian. Thank you for joining us this week on Some Days Here. If you've liked what you've heard, please take a moment and subscribe to the show so that each new episode automatically downloads to your device every week. And thank you for sharing this podcast with your friends. We would love for you to rate and review the show so that others can find out about us. A special thank you to the brilliant team that makes Some Days Here possible. The Some Days Here logo is designed by Jocelyn Chung. The original music is by Joseph Patrick with Passion Net Productions. Show notes on the website are by Vicki Pham. The sound engineer is Aaron Kretzman. The director of design and website designer is Kenny Wong. And the executive producer is Chantelle Reynolds. Have a great week. And we look forward to you joining us again for another episode of Someday is Here. <laughs>